How do I tell you about my conversion to Christ without making it seem like an alien abduction? (laughs) Or perhaps a train wreck? Truth be told, it felt a little like both. The language normally used to describe this odd miracle just doesn't work for me. I did not read one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes, examine my life against the tenets of the Bible, you know, the way one might hold up one car insurance policy against all others, and cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. While I did make choices along the path of this journey, they never felt sane, risk-free, or even logical. Neither did I feel like some victim of an emotional earthquake and fall, you know, gracefully into the arms of my Savior like some holy and sanctified Scarlet O'Hara, having been claimed by Christ's irresistible grace. Heretical as it might sound, I found Christ and Christianity eminently resistible. My Christian life unfolded as I was living my life, my normal life. And in the normal course of life, questions emerged that challenged and exceeded my secular feminist worldview. Those questions simply remained dormant until I met a most unlikely friend, a Christian pastor, who was also my neighbor. Now, had this Christian pastor and neighbor not shared and lived the gospel as my neighbor and friend, For years and years, over and over again, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way, those questions might still be lodged in the crevices of my mind, and I might still not yet have met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. I had a normal childhood. Somehow, if you're going to talk about homosexuality in this day and age, if it's true, you should just say that. So nobody dropped me on my head that I know of. Um, I'm named after the rosary, uh, and I attended primarily liberal Catholic schools. And my Catholic all-girl high school discipled me in the life skills that I still use today. I learned there to think deeply and well. I learned there to diagram a sentence before I dared interpret it. And I learned there to look out for the unloved and the unlovely, stand with them, and draw them in. I also had what I believed was a heterosexual adolescence. I was what they would call a late bloomer. Uh, I met my first boyfriend in college, but I found it to be a heady experience. And at the same time, an undercurrent of longing inserted itself into my intense friendships with women. I didn't make much of this at first, and from the age of 22 until 28, I continued to date men, and at the same time experienced a sense of longing and connection that simply toppled over the edges for my women friends. It took almost a decade of dating men for me to realize that I kept falling in love with women. The repetitious sensibility rooted and grew, and I told myself that I simply preferred the company of women. And then in my late 20s, enhanced in part by feminist philosophy and LGBT political advocacy, my homosocial preference morphed into homosexuality. That shift was subtle, not startling. My lesbian identity and my love for my LGBT community developed in sync with my lesbian sexual practice. And life finally came together for me and made sense. Once I met my first lesbian lover, I was hooked. I studied Freud. I cheered that the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for the APA, they had long since removed homosexuality as a, of a, according to a list of disorders, thus rendering homosexuality in the eyes of the world and the eyes of the academy normal. With no prohibitions or constraints, 
By the time I had graduated from Ohio State with a Ph.D. in English literature and critical theory, I left the Buckeye State with my first lesbian partner. We moved to New York for me to begin a tenure-track position in the English department at Syracuse University. My life as a lesbian seemed ho-hum normal. I did all the same things that you do. I walked the dog, I fed the fish, I tried to keep the plants alive, I tried to not be grumpy with my neighbors and my students. It was just sort of normal. I considered my lesbianism an enlightened, chosen path. In fact, I argued that lesbianism was a more moral sexual practice than heterosexuality. I said it was cleaner. Um, And I have always preferred symmetry to asymmetry. And so I simply believed that I had found my real self. Well, what happened to my Catholic training, you might ask? At this point, I just simply thought it was anti-intellectual and superstitious. You see, the name Jesus, which had rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayers and then rolled off my back in college, now made me recoil with anger. As a professor of English and women's studies, I tired of students who believed that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians seemed like bad readers to me. Ironic, I thought, given that they believed the Bible was the true truth. You see, Christians would use the Bible in a way that Marxists call vulgar, to end a conversation rather than to deepen it. I found Christians consistently using the Bible like I would use a punctuation mark. And in my world, you quote a book to engage conversation, to get the conversation started, not to shut it down. But you know what? That didn't bother me the most. To me, the most frustrating thing about Christians, the thing that I just couldn't let go of, was that you simply would not leave consenting adults alone. You see, I cared about morality and justice and compassion. I'm a 19th century scholar, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. And I've always, stri- I've always striven to stand with the disempowered. And my life at this time was happy, meaningful, and full. My next lesbian partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, just to name a few things. We were part of a Unitarian Universalist church. I was part of the welcoming committee. It was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and good caregivers. And even though I did co-author the first uh, domestic partnership policy at my university, my friends and I simply never believed that we took part in a gay agenda. And when Christians would accuse me of this, which they did fairly regularly, I would say, okay, have it your way. My gay agenda involves feeding the poor, housing the homeless, and teaching reading to the illiterate. You see, the LGBT community that I know, that I was a part of, values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. And the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife, I learned and I honed in my queer community. Well, after my tenure book was written, I began writing the next one on the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. To do this, I began reading the Bible while looking out for some Bible scholar to help me wade through this complex book. I took note that the Bible was an engaging literary display of every genre and trope and type. Did you know that? There isn't a genre that exists that, that, that you can't find in the Bible. Nobody told me that. That was new. I, I was fascinated by this book. But really, it's a library, not a book. It has edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. And at the same time, the Bible embodied a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, 
Sodom and Gomorrah? I thought that was totally absurd. And at the same time, the Christian men's movement, the Promise Keepers, they came to town. And I don't know what they did that bothered me so much. Maybe my favorite parking spot was taken. I don't know. But when they parked their little circus at the university, I went on a war. In fact, I told people, I'm on a war. I'm on a war against stupidity. And for that reason, I wrote an op-ed piece, and I published it in the local newspaper. Well, this article generated so many rejoinders that I kept two big crates on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. This was before email, so there was a lot of dead trees that were caused by this. Forgive me. One letter that I received, though, defied my filing system. It was from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken did not argue with my article. Rather, he gently invited me to examine the presuppositions that undergirded it. In his letter, he shared his love for the Bible his concern that college students were not reading the Bible as part of the literature curriculum, and he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. Well, I thought that was really illogical. I believed that people proceed from history and are shaped, for good or for ill, by the culture that molds them. I didn't know how to respond to Ken's letter, so it never made it to either the hate mail or the fan mail, I just threw it away. And I should tell you that I did throw it away in the recycling bin because I was not a bad person, so it didn't go in the garbage. And later that night, I found myself on my hands and knees, you know, fishing it out of the department's recycling bin, and I put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, and it confronted me with a worldview divide that demanded a response if I was going to write this book. You see, I was a postmodern intellectual. I operated from a historical materialist worldview. But Christianity is, in part, a supernatural one. If I was going to understand how this book, the Bible, got so many people off track, and how this man, Jesus, persuaded so many decent people to follow him, Ken's letter showed me that I needed to understand Christianity and its attending worldviews as a supernatural thing. Well, this was new information. Uh, At this point in my life, the category of the supernatural was exclusively reserved for Stephen King novels. And he was a big donor uh, of the English department, so we, we weren't to snicker at his novels. You know, I was also deeply suspicious of and even frightened of the motives and the worldviews that Christians espoused. You see, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches, enough to probably write a whole book on that. That Christians who protested against me and mocked me at gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell was about as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock. It engaged And from his letter, Ken actually seemed different from those Christians who hid behind placards at Gay Pride Day. So when Ken invited me to his house for dinner to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted. You see, the motives at the time were quite clear. I considered Ken an unpaid uh, research assistant. Um, And I was absolutely sure that this friendship would be the very best thing that this new book needed. Well, something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floy, and I became friends, real friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. They met my partner. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. And they did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They never told me that Jesus was the answer to all of my problems, They never treated me like a blank slate. And when we ate together, Ken would pray before the meal in a way that I had simply never heard. 
His prayers were intimate. His prayers were vulnerable. He actually repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things, even the hard things. Ken's God was holy and firm and yet full of mercy. And at my first meal at their home, Ken and Floyd omitted two important steps in the rule book of how Christians should deal with an atheist, heathen, lesbian like me. And everybody knows the rule book. I knew the rule book. He knew the rule book. Number one, he did not share the gospel with me. I mean, imagine that. He just didn't. And number two, he did not invite me to church. Now, just imagine this. He trusted God so much that I was going to get in my little red truck with all my gay rights bumper stickers and drive the mile back to my home, and if I got struck by lightning, he believed that apparently it wouldn't have been his fault. He did not share those things with me. And because of that, because he omitted those two things, I knew then that when we were heading to the end of the evening, and he said he would like to keep in touch with me. In fact, he'd actually like to help me with this book. He'd like to help me read the Bible. I really believed that it was safe to become friends. You see, Ken made it clear to me that I was not his project. I was Ken's neighbor. This wasn't friendship evangelism. This was friendship And that letter that Ken wrote to me in that first dinner at his house initiated two years of Ken and Floyd bringing the church to me, a heathen. I started meeting with Ken and Floyd regularly, reading the Bible in earnest with pen in hand and notebook in lap. At this time, I also met a man at the Smith's house who also had a long history in sexual sin, but who had become a follower of this God-man, Jesus Christ. And he encouraged me to dig deeply into the Bible. Well, I started to read the Bible simply the way I was trained to read a book. I looked at it as a book. I read it from start to finish. I looked at things like textual authority, authorship, canonicity, internal hermeneutics. And I read the way a glutton devours Slowly and over time, the Bible started to take on a life and a meaning that simply startled me. And some of my well-worn paradigms, especially those about gender and race, no longer stuck. And I was starting to wonder why that was. I hadn't changed, but there was something about this book that was, well, it seemed dangerous to me. And I should tell you that I was on a research leave and I was, the, I was reading the Bible about five hours a day. That gives the Holy Spirit a lot of time in the life of a person, let me just say. But I did have to at least ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book was somehow different from all the others because it was inspired by something and someone different from all the others, and that would be a holy God. But its implications that it was inherently true and trustworthy really offended me. And so this led me to go through the presuppositional truth claims. You see, Marxists are really the first presuppositionalists. Van Til kind of stole it from us. So I, I was used to being a presuppositionalist long before I, uh, I identified as a Christian and committed my life to Jesus. But the presuppositional truth claims, at least in my life at this point, went something like this. Number one, if this book was written by men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's what we're told, then actually its admonitions about sin were not applied cultural phobia. You see, prior to reading the Bible for myself, I believed that the category of sin merely was what Freud called applied cultural phobia. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but there are many, many dismissive ways that most of the big 19th century thinkers dismissed Christianity. Uh, and, and you dismiss Christianity by dismissing the things that make it different and distinct. So if sin is just applied cultural phobia, well, who cares about that, right? Um, Darwin called Christian morality a coping mechanism. That's how the weak cope 
before the strong take over. And so I had really been tutored in these ways. But it struck me that if God is good, then his goodness is unrestrained by time, and it actually anticipates and guards against the ill treatment of people. I noticed as I read the Bible that its admonitions about sin were actually followed by offers of grace. And that struck me as odd. You mean the God of the Bible deals differently with people when people deal differently with him? That was new information. I never saw that on a placard at a gay pride march. Maybe I just missed it. But number two, if God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible actually had the right to interrogate my life and my culture and not the other way around. You see, even as a postmodern reader, I understood the idea that authority can only depend upon that which is higher than itself. I was a professor at this time. If your paper was due on Friday and you didn't give it to me until Monday, it was not going to go well for you. You might be a much nicer person than I am, but I had more authority, and that's what it came down to. And for the first time in my life, I asked myself this question, who is higher than God? Well, my friends knew that I was reading the Bible, and they were concerned because it seemed like this was getting to be more than just a research project. First, the dean of the chapel took me out to lunch and shared with me his belief that the Old Testament was completely dispensable and with it any prohibition about sexuality and immorality. I mean, he said, look, Rosaria, God made you a lesbian. Go be a good lesbian for Jesus. But I had been studying the three different narratives of the Old Testament, the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law. And it seemed to me that you could not dispense with the entire Old Testament without actually violating a rule about canonicity, no creating canons within canons. And I had actually been teaching that rule just that week in my queer theory seminar. See, because that's the rule upon which the white male canon of English literature is dismantled. So it's a big deal to feminists, and it seemed really odd to me that this feminist, liberal Christian didn't understand that you couldn't throw that rule out and arrive at where he was trying to arrive. And in fact, I actually had this moment, this moment of either clarity or, or insanity, where I wondered if perhaps he should take my graduate class in queer theory so that we could talk about the Bible. But I had also been studying the New Testament. So it wasn't just an Old Testament problem that I was having with what he was saying about the moral law of God. Uh, Chapter 15 in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem Council, that seemed to confirm that the moral law of God was actually to continue throughout all time as God's clear command. And at the same time, Acts 10 9 through 16 made it clear that the ceremonial law was no longer binding and hence, you know, the wearing of wool and cotton did not violate God's law. And so the chapel dean's position, at least from the perspective of somebody who studies hermeneutics, required ignoring these important passages. And it seemed to be what we would call a hermeneutics of convenience. And that's where you conform the text to fit your sense of the text. And again, all of these things were used to um, help dismantle the white male canon. So I knew knew what these tasks were about. But it seemed like it was a hermeneutic of of convenience, conforming the text to fit my experience, and not a hermeneutic of integrity. And that's where the text gets a chance to fulfill its mission. You see, every book you will ever read has an internal mission. And that's true whether that book is Jane Eyre or whether it's the Bible. Every book, and that's part of why the Puritans and others didn't like people reading literature. Literature has a way of getting inside you. It has a way of forcing you to take the point of view of somebody you don't know and maybe somebody you don't like. But, you know, even a postmodern reader-response critic like myself knows that each text has an internal mission. 
And especially as an unbeliever, I understood that the internal mission of the Bible, well, it's to transform the entire nature of humanity. That's its job. I knew it. You know it. And this means everyone, every man, woman, child, queer-identifying, trans-identifying, straight-identifying. You see, that's why everybody knows that the Bible is a dangerous text. Everybody but evangelical Christians sometimes, I think. And I was really puzzled that the chapel dean seemed to have such little understanding of the book that he had studied so much longer than I did. But the other thing that happened was the thing that really got under my skin. At a dinner gathering that my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend, Jill, cornered me in the kitchen. Jill put her large hand over mine and said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you, and I'm really scared for you. Well, I felt exposed. Jill was right. And, I must tell you, always was in the whole history of our friendship. But what if it's true, I asked. What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Well, Jill exhaled deeply and sat down in the chair next to mine, and Jill's eyes looked wise and said these things, and I'll never forget them. Jill said, Rosaria, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, and he did not. But if you'd like, I will pray for you. Well, now you know what gay rights activists talk about in the kitchen. And I mean that sincerely. Eternity is written on the hearts of people. Who are we before a living God is not something that uh, just the church asks, or even that just the church asks very well. It was a burning question, and it is a burning question, for every single image bearer of a holy God. Well, this encounter gave me a kind of secret, tacit permission to keep reading the Bible. After all, my dear friend Jill had read it cover to cover many times and had rooted around in its deep crevices for purpose and help. But the bomb that Jill dropped also enraged me. I mean, who is this Jesus who heals some but not others? I was a social rights activist. No social rights activist wants some unequal opportunity God. And at the same time, I just recoiled at the word healing I was a gay rights activist. I believed gay is good. I didn't need healing, and I certainly didn't want healing on the terms that the Bible offered. But I had also been reading the Bible and had read it many times through at this point, and I noticed that the Bible didn't even say I needed healing. No, not at all. The Bible said I needed to repent for my sin. Well, you know what? I didn't like either of those terms. I didn't like the the terms of healing, and I didn't like the terms of repentance. And so I rejected both the idea that I needed healing and the idea that I needed saving from my sin. Well, the next day, when I returned home from work, I found two large milk crates spilling over with theological books, Jill's books from seminary, given now to me. And in Calvin's Institutes, in Jill's handwriting, was a warning. Watch Romans 1. Even though I had read the Bible many times through, there are some passages I read a little more quickly than others. This would have been one of them. But with my good friend Jill taking my hand, I mean, I don't know, for, for people who are reading on a Kindle, you miss this. The great joy of a book given by a friend with a little love letter in it that just tells you something about how that person processed information. Well, if Jill was brave enough to read Romans 1, I decided I had better be also. And I wanted to know what the warning was. And so this is what I read. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart 
was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Well, I found the verb clauses in their order here to be particularly arresting. Did not honor God, did not give thanks, engaged in futile speculations, became fools, exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible. God gives us over to our lusts, and when we look at the world through our lusts, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and dishonor our bodies and worship the world. Well, these verses seem to provide a haunting literary echo to Genesis 3, where Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority made perfect sense to me. If I was Eve, I would have done the same thing. And at the same time, this seemingly innocent sin, attributed to Adam because of his headship, served as the leverage for the whole world to come tumbling down, fierce and fast, bloody and brilliant. You know, if you read the Bible a verse a day, you will never feel the momentum that Genesis has. But if you just go home tonight and read Genesis, it turns into a bloodbath almost immediately. Sin enters the world, and nobody is safe again. Well, these two biblical frames, one in Genesis and one in Romans, stood out as the bookends of my life. But not just my life. That's the rub. If the Bible is, as its internal testimony purports, an eternal frame relevant for and responding to the needs of all of humanity, then Genesis 3 and Romans 1 actually stood out as the table of contents of what ails the world. Indeed, Romans 1 does not end by highlighting homosexuality as a discrete and separate matter in the way that we talk about it today. No, not at all. And instead, this passage finds its crescendo in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and in how one sin, homosexuality, seems to morph into other sins while finding its impetus and crescendo in original sin. This is what the rest of Romans 1 says, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, evil, greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Well, this last line grabbed me by the throat. It told me that if I cannot receive a blessing from God, I will demand it from men. As the faculty advisor to many LGBT student groups on campus, this got my attention. But I also took note of the theological diagnosis. Homosexuality in the Bible is not the endpoint of the problem for God or for the world. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin, but it is presented here as one step in the journey away from God's blessing and protection. Homosexuality, then, biblically speaking, is consequential, not causal. Homosexuality, from God's point of view, is an identity-rooted, ethical outworking of this original sin. And therefore, it seemed solidly biblical to say that we are indeed born this way. Because truth be told, some of us are born distorted by original sin by having a desire for a sexual encounter with someone of the same gender. 
And we're all distorted by original sin in one way or another. But by failing to rigorously relinquish my identity to God's story, and by failing to understand that the fall rendered even my deepest and most primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue, I had actually added to my ledger of original sin by creating for myself a category of personhood that God did not. God has one category of personhood. We are male and female image bearers of a holy God with a soul that will last forever and a body that will be glorified in the new Jerusalem with this new world. The Bible is clear on this point. There are ethical and moral constraints and responsibilities to being born male and female and to having a soul that will last forever. And if you want to know the most scandalous thing that I will ever say on a college campus, and that will cause the picket signs to go up immediately and the declarations of hate speech to go up immediately, it's that last line, that being born male and female come with ethical and moral responsibilities and restraints. And I know this because I've given almost this exact same talk on college campuses, secular and Christian. Well, I had taught, studied, read, and lived a very different notion of homosexuality. And for the first time in my life, I actually wondered if I was wrong. And you know what? That's when this research project came to an end. It stopped me in my tracks. Somehow it was easier to hate the Bible when it simply squared off against me, kind of as an outside force. But now that it was getting under my skin, it became a foe of a different and a more menacing kind. And at that point, I took the research project, I threw it in the garbage, and I took the Bible, and I tried to throw it in the garbage as well. I tried. But Ken and Floyd had become my friends at this point. They encouraged me to keep reading the Bible. And only because I trusted them did I do so. So now, as I was reading and rereading the Bible, not as somebody writing a book on it, but as somebody questioning the reality of my soul and its purpose and magnitude and questioning the reality of is Jesus real, it was even more difficult. Things got even harder. You see, I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that the biblical authors were moved by the Holy Spirit to record the Word of God, and that the Bible is completely true and without error. I saw that the Bible's meaning and purpose had a holy and supernatural authority. I could feel that. I could see that it had protected it over the years of its canonicity and that it was the repository of truth. I was sensing that that was true. But you know what? How in the world could a smart cookie like me embrace such things? I was actually a postmodernist. I didn't believe in truth. I believed in truth claims. I was a reader-response critic. I believed that the text meaning found its power only in the reader's interpretation of it. Without a reader, a book is just paper and glue, I told my students over and over again. How dare this one book lay claim to a birthright and a progeny totally different from every other book on the planet? Well, as I was reading and discussing these things with Ken, and I should yet say that the word, using the word discussion here is a very tame one, um, but nonetheless, I'm in polite company. So as I, was, as I was discussing these things with Ken, he pointed out to me that Jesus is the word made flesh and that knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible, the whole Bible, not the Jesus of someone's imagination. I was not allowed to give to Jesus only those things that my flesh could keep in reserve. It was all or nothing, even the places that took my life captive. And after years 
and years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world, and I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I had first met Ken and Floyd, and two years after I started reading the Bible for my research, I left the bed that I shared with my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in a chair that looks a little bit like this. Um, you see, I, you really never do know the treacherous path that the person you might be sitting next to in two days in these little chairs might have taken to get here. I was a little conspicuous of my appearance. Most of the women in the church didn't dress the way I did or have the hairstyle that I did. But I reminded myself that I did not come there to fit in. I came there to figure out if Jesus is who he says he is. Well, the first sermon that I heard Ken preach was intended for children. Ken started to talk about the narrow gate and the wide gate, and, you know, immediately my mind started to drift away, and I didn't get much of the sermon. I kept thinking about last year's gay pride march, wide as it was with people just like me, people I loved, people I called family of choice, people I had shared holidays with and birthdays and traditions, people who made me feel safe and loved, people that I valued as family, people who could finish my sentences and understand my jokes. Even so, I kept going back to church to hear more sermons. You see, I had actually made friendships with people in that church at this time, and I really appreciated the way that they talked about the sermons throughout the week, how the Word of God dwelt in them, and how they referenced it in the most minute details of the day, sometimes in perfect, memorized recitation. So I should tell you that English professors by training love cross-referencing, and we love direct quotations. You know, we just have to get a fix of those. And it was only my Christian friends who were doing that, quoting the Bible, not to me, but to themselves as they were talking about how their days were going and how their life was going. And I muddled this strange practice over in my mind. People of God, cross-referencing the Bible with your life actually places you inside God's story. It places you inside God's ontology. Is that safe? Is that deadly? I sure knew it would not be safe for me to do such crazy things with a book. I pondered these matters. Ken was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew at this time. Matthew is such a fascinating literary text uh, on its own terms. It has bewildering characters and problems, unsuspecting folks separated unto the gospel, seeds choked by the world, and feeding thousands with some poor and nameless kids bread and fish. And boy, have I always felt sorry for that kid. His name isn't even recorded. And then Jesus' cutting question to impetuous Peter, do you still lack understanding? Well, you know, one Lord's Day, Ken Smith just stopped right there. And he turned his steel blue eyes on the congregation, and he held us in this long pause, and I thought, oh no, is that guy going to have a heart attack? I mean, it was just way too long of a pause. <laughs> and then he put his notes down, and he came out down there, and he asked this question. He said, Congregation, did Christ ever say this to you? Do you still lack understanding? And this startled me. This made me feel like my bones had gone hollow. Because you know what? This was my question. I'm a smart cookie. I've read this book a lot of times, and obviously my Christian friends were tracking with something that I didn't get. I was lacking understanding. And when that man came down from that pulpit and asked that question, and it had been a question that I had been asking myself, for this flash moment before I could shove this thought down, I wondered, who in the world is speaking that old man behind the pulpit or the God-man behind the creation 
and redemption of his people. You see, there was something powerfully disarming about preaching. And the truth be told, the preached word is still, to me, powerfully disarming. Well, the image that crashed like waves in a raging sea of of me and everyone I loved, suffering in hell, vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. Not because we called ourselves gay, mind you, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous. We wanted consenting adults to be left alone. We rejected the Bible's interpretive authority over our sexuality, our sexual identity, our sexual desires, and our sexual practice. It was our hearts and our minds first. Our bodies and identities followed. I got it, and I heard it. Finally, I counted the costs, and I still did not want the gospel. You see, this was my crucible, and it is my crucible. If the Bible is true, I was dead. And if the Bible is false, you are looking at the biggest fool on earth. But God's promises started to roll in on another wave into my world. And, and one Lord's Day, Pastor Ken was preaching on John seven seventeen. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. Well, this verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. You see, I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them and tell you all what to think. And I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience and not the other way around. I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. And you want to know why I wanted God to show me on my terms? Because I wanted to be the judge. That's why. Who wouldn't? I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Perhaps I thought like even in the garden, I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. And then I wondered, hadn't I already done this? Hadn't we all? You see, if my consciousness fell in Adam's sin, as the Bible purports, it's no wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. This wasn't actually a game of thinking. This wasn't a game of the matching of wits. The Bible's question to me was a totally different question than the one I wanted. This was the Bible's question. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so high because they always are. But this, got, this verse promised understanding after obedience. And I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I have a PhD in arguing people. I, I can tell you which one I'm better at. Well, I actually prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood And starting with my own sexuality was just too scary. It was too impossible. I could not go there. So I started with Jesus. I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. I prayed that I would be a vessel of Jesus. And then I moved to gender, and I don't know why, but I had this driving, very conflicted, very painful desire to make biblical sense of my place in the world. My place, not somebody else's place, but me, mouthy, smart me, my place in the world, as a woman defined by and covered by God. And I realized that if I really wanted that, that I was actually asking God to make me a godly woman. And so I prayed that God would make me a godly woman. And then I laughed so hard in my unbelief at the insanity of this prayer that one of my housemates, who was a Wiccan witch at the time, knocked on the door of my room and said, are you okay in there? You know, now she's talking to herself. But I, it had already come out, right? Have you ever done that? Your prayers get ahead of you. I blurted it out. 
and I wanted to follow through on it. I was really curious. So I prayed that God would make me a godly woman. I I prayed that God would give me the faith to repent of my sin at its root. And what is the root of my sin, I wondered. I actually did not think then, and I don't think now, that homosexuality was the root of my sin. You see, according to the Bible, homosexuality is not a root sin. It's a fruit of something else. It's it's an ethical outworking of a state of mind and a practical outworking of original sin. And so really, my first night of prayer was a total bust. I left it with just a question. Could original sin be for real? I mean, isn't it just a myth? I mean, could it really be for real? And is, could I really be held and, and understood to be guilty and corrupt because of it? And could it really distort me like this? And finally, is my sexual, for lo- my sexual love for women a reflection of the real me? That's what I'd said. That's why I called myself a lesbian. I wasn't trying to be cagey. Or is my sexual love for women a distortion of the real me through original sin? Couldn't be both. And how does one repent of a sin that doesn't feel like a sin at all just a normal, not-bothering-another-soul kind of life. How would I come to this place? What is the root of the sin of sexual identity? Is it the sex? Is it the identity? Is it both? I was a jumble of emotions. But I started to develop a prayer momentum where I just prayed that the Lord would help me to see my life from his point of view. And I would pray these things at night, and I would wake up in the morning, and I would look in the mirror, and I would look just the same. But then one morning, I decided to look in the mirror of the Bible. And then the question was pretty stark. I wondered, am I a lesbian? Am I an atheist? Am I a master of my own destiny? Am I exempt from blame because what I do in bed is self-contained and does not affect anyone but my lover? Or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul from the spirit, judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? You see, I still felt like a lesbian in my body and my heart, And what I mean by that, I felt my real identity. But what is my true identity, I wondered. See, the Bible makes clear that the category of the real and the category of the true have a very troubled relationship this side of heaven. For many people in the Bible, their true identity and calling only comes after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, with dreams and plans and hopes dashed and destroyed. Why would I be any different The Bible makes clear that my future and my calling will always echo an attribute of God. And obedience constrains. It mirrors suffering. Every selection implies a sacrifice. But what's bigger, I wondered, my lesbian identity or God's authority over me and his holy sovereignty over the world? Who is this Jesus? Did I know him? Did I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus simply because there was no place else to go. We were singing from Psalm 119, line 56 in church. The line goes like this. This is mine because forever all thy precepts I preserve. After I sang these words, I I checked them in the Bible just to make sure the Psalter didn't have some wacky rendering there. Only the Bible made it worse for me. It always does, just in case, whenever I'm trying to dodge something and I go look in the Bible, it's, it's, it's always worse. The Bible actually used a helping verb and noted the verse like this. This has become mine. And something about that helping verb made something shift in me. 
It was like two weight-bearing walls collapsed at the same time. You see, the first wall came crashing down because I had actually just then sung condemnation unto myself, and I was actually in tune enough with the Holy Spirit to feel his convicting rebuke. This Bible was not mine. I had scorned it and cursed it and despised it, and I personally had taught thousands of college students to do the same thing. But I had been reading and rereading this book, and the use of the helping verb has and has become really troubled me. You see, two years of laborious reading embodies that helping verb has. It showed process, journey, pilgrimage, and danger. But I was not in Christ, and therefore I could not possibly keep these precepts God's law, not in word, heart change, or deed. And here was the shattering of the second wall. I had actually read the Bible many times through. And at that point, I fully saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it really was a canonized collection of 66 books with a perfectly unified biblical revelation. And I heard for myself that when the phrase, this is mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I was attesting to this one simple truth, that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture, and that I really wanted both to hear God's voice and will breathed into my life, and I wanted God to hear my prayers. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate for peace and social justice, I had always thought I was on the side of kindness, integrity, diversity, human flourishing, and compassion. It was thus a crushing revelation to discover it. It was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. And and not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, that Jesus. Well, of course, there's only one thing to do when you meet a living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. I started with pride. My life was filled with pride. And I really mean this literally. My house was the warehouse for the gay pride march. I had about 20 pride posters staring at me at any moment. I had a gay pride flag that would wave in the breeze outside my home. My dog had a rainbow doggy bowl. My life was filled with pride. And so I repented of my pride. The pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith and life and sexual autonomy. The pride that led me to believe that I could live in an entitled way separately from God the pride that led me to believe that self-worth was self-invented. Repentance is bittersweet business. Repentance is not just some one-time conversion exercise. It is the daily, hourly, minute-by-minute posture of the Christian. It is my daily fruit, my hourly washing, my minute-by-minute wake-up call, my reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Indeed, I learned that repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian life because it proves only the obvious, that God was right all along. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything I loved to gain Christ. But you know what? I simply had to. And God gave me a pastor and a church community who were not so arrogant to believe that they were more merciful than God. Softly, the voice of God sang a sanguine love song into the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. 
I drank from the means of grace that God provides, Bible reading, prayer, psalm singing, fellowship of the saints, and later church membership and the Lord's Supper. I took respite in private peace and then Christian community. Conversion to Christ did not initially or immediately change my sexual attraction to women. What conversion to Christ did was it proved to me that Jesus is who he says he is. I was not converted out of homosexuality. That's just not how it happened. I was converted out of unbelief. And what conversion did change immediately was my heart and my mind. My mind was on fire for the Bible, and I could not read enough of it or enough about it. My pastor and friends reminded me that the Christian doctrine of sin explained why sinful longings do not disappear immediately. But they also reminded me that with Christ, all things are possible. I learned not to be discouraged when we look to ourselves and notice we don't measure up. In fact, let's be clear on this. We assuredly do not measure up. Jesus measures up for us. And that's the point. So what about homosexuality? Did I ever get that special telegram or email from the Holy Spirit explaining to me why it is a sin? Did I ever feel the unnaturalness that Romans 1 outlined so powerfully? Well, no, that's actually not what happened either. You see, the sinfulness of my sin unfolded for me in the authority of the Bible alone, in the growing sweetness of my union with Christ and the sanctification that this births. A little like uh, an Alzheimer's patient who, in a flashing moment of mental lucidity, signs over his rights to his able-minded caregiver, a believer signs over his rights of interpretation to the God of the Bible. And I knew I had to turn this wheel over to God. I learned in that crucible that even though I felt these desires deep in me, deep in my bones, uh, you know, when people say it's in the flesh, I, it, for me it felt like it went deeper. Um, I learned that I was not to love or cherish anything that God calls sin, even as my flesh craved it. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen puts it this way, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. It doesn't say if you have iniquity in your heart, if you have these desires. We all have those desires, whatever they may be. Objects may be different, but sinful nature, uh-uh, nobody got a free pass. But we're not to cherish it. So the verb to note is cherish. When I cherish sin, I am separating myself from a holy God. When you defend your right to a particular sin because you've known it all of your life, you are cherishing it. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 declares this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. When we cherish sin, we build a wall between us and our Maker, and we are deceived to believe that our sin is not sin simply because it feels good. And when we do that, we call God a liar, and we use our personal feelings as proof. And I don't mean to be crass, but if your sin doesn't feel good, you're probably not even doing it right anyway. That's the problem with sin, is it feels good. You can never use that as a barometer for why it's not a sin. That's not how this one works. All our personal feelings prove is that original sin and the deceptiveness of sin are inseparable. As 1 John 1.10 puts it, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Over time, I came to see that the root of my lesbianism was pride. I did not want any man to have any authority over me and my body, and that is the sin of pride. Before I was a follower of Christ, I had believed that both gender and sexuality were social constructs, definable and malleable by the intent of the person who bears them. 
But I came to believe through the Bible's witness that denying the ethical responsibilities to being born male and female bearers of a holy God is itself a sin. Now, for others, the root of their homosexuality may be lust or sexual addiction or simply the unchosen imprint of Adam's fall. And some sins are harder to battle than others. For God, though, when we take the risk to call sin, sin, and repent of it, even when we acknowledge that it feels good, we are honoring God's authority. Sometimes getting to a posture of repentance is its own battle, as the flesh cries out for the forbidden object, while the heart and mind owned by Jesus beg for deliverance. This is a battle, and the real Christian life is a battle. And anybody who tells you that the gospel comes in addition to the life that you love and not in exchange for it is lying from the pit of hell. Any Christianity that can be put on that coexist bumper sticker is going to send you to hell faster than anything else. Christ is in us and with us in this battle because repentance is the threshold to God. But I did learn this about all sexual sin. All sexual sin is sinful, not because we feel it or don't feel it or like it or don't like it or disgusted by it or embrace it, but all sexual sin is sinful because it attacks God's creation ordinance and it degrades a fellow image bearer. The first step of sexual purity for me was realizing that God was calling me to so greatly love other women that I would not desire for them anything that might separate them from a holy God. And that is why God and his people do not believe that leaving consenting adults alone is the answer to peaceful coexistence in a diverse world. Now, for those in this room who experience homosexual desires... This can be a hard and a heavy cross to bear, and I get it. And I also know that if you are in Christ, Jesus will carry the heavier part of this burden, because crosses are not curses. But please, to the Christians who do not experience gay or lesbian temptations or longings, do not add unbearable weight to this burden by thinking that the sin of homosexual practice is somehow different from all the others or beyond the scope of redemption or even that its solution is heterosexual marriage. The solution to all sin is Christ's atoning blood. What happens after that is up to God. In Christ, we are new creatures. In Christ, we have a new will, heart, and affection for God's word and his will. We are redeemed men and women who have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, Romans 6.4 says. We are no longer slaves to the sin that once defined us, although likely it still has our names and addresses. Much of my struggle with the indwelling sin of homosexuality was figuring out its expanse and deciding whether I was going to agree with God's vocabulary and God's dictionary or argue instead for my own. Was my lesbian desire a reflection of who I am or a distortion of who I am through the consequence of Adam's fall? Was original sin for real? If my lesbian feelings never went away, did that mean that God did not hear my prayer or love me? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ simply a bad deal for people who have gay or lesbian desires? These are important questions. This was not an easy or linear process. At a certain point in my journey, I realized that the promises of sexual fulfillment on my own terms were actually the antithesis of what I had once fervently believed. Instead of liberty, my sexual sin was enslavement. And then one day, my lesbian sensibilities and desires became for me a kind of dead...